the world of nuclear technology is plagued with myths and tropes. One myth is that all nuclear technology is terrible and used to make bombs. It's not. It can be used to treat cancer and save lives. Another myth is that the president needs a second vote to order the use of nuclear weapons. Nope. A third? That radioactive material emits a green glow. In fact, it's blue. This is what you might have seen in The Simpsons, and everyone talks about it kind of being green and so on. Then I actually get to see the real thing. This will come as a shock to no one, but Homer Simpson's glowing green nuclear fragment is not a scientifically accurate representation of nuclear fuel. Right now, around the world, there are used nuclear fuel rods cooling in concrete ponds. They glow, but it's blue. It's called a Cherenkov glow. It actually looks like a big swimming pool because water is one of the best shields for for radiation. And the heat that comes off that creates this special light. This is Sandra Munoz. She's an inspector with the International Atomic Energy Agency. I am senior inspector in what we call Division of Operations C, which is responsible largely for Europe, Ukraine, Russia, and so on. And part of her job is to visit nuclear reactors and bask in the Cherenkov glow. She arrives at a site, climbs up a ladder, and walks out over a bridge above something called a spent fuel pond. Really, more like a swimming pool than a pond. Filled with water, where used nuclear fuel cools down after being burned in a nuclear reactor. The water shields her from the radiation, so it's basically safe. Still, Sandra gets suited up in protective gear before she walks out over the pool. I remember the first few times I found that really, wow, I mean, how many people around the world can do that? Every job has its perks. Sandra is an inspector. She's not taking a tour. She's looking into the pool for a reason. The Cherenkov glow, you can only see that when you're directly vertically above it. If you move slightly to the side, you will not see it. So this is how we can distinguish if someone's, for example, put what we call a dummy fuel and just tried to put a glowing light. If we see it when we move left and right, then we know it's not real nuclear material. Sandra's job is to verify that countries comply with international safeguards to keep their nuclear activities peaceful, to make sure that no nuclear material is being diverted to make nuclear weapons. So, as an inspector, she verifies that the used fuel is where they say it is, not at some secret location being turned into a bomb. Like any good detective, Sandra and other inspectors have to pay attention to the details. Because her mission, and the mission of the IAEA, is about as heavy and important as it gets. To make sure that nuclear energy programs aren't misused to build bombs. That brings me to one more myth, that inspectors are somehow easy to fool. I heard that a lot in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, and I heard it again during the debate over the Iran nuclear deal. If we held inspections and action movie-style violence to the same standard, we'd see that inspections do way more to stop the spread of nuclear weapons than assassinations or sabotage. But we don't. Which is a shame, because inspections are in their own understated way, really freaking cool. I get a bit excited about safeguards. (laughs) Sometimes I can just go on and on if you don't stop me, but uh, I will do my best to stay on point. Sandra, don't worry about it. You're among friends.
I'm Jeffrey Lewis, and you're listening to The Deal. If you're just finding us, season one tells the story of the Iran nuclear deal. You don't have to listen to season one to follow season two, but it helps. Now we're bringing our story into the present, exploring President Joe Biden's options when it comes to Iran and its nuclear program. This is episode three, Safeguards. In the early 1950s, the world looked at nuclear technology with a mix of fear and hope. The shock and devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were very real. But so was the dream of using nuclear power for cheap, clean energy. The Adams for Peace, yeah. Eisenhower's speech. To hasten the day when fear of the atom will begin to disappear from the minds of people and the governments of the East and West, there are certain steps that can be taken now. I therefore and so, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, was born. The IAEA's mission is to promote the peaceful use of nuclear technology, while also safeguarding the atom. Over time, the world has worked out a basic bargain. Countries can develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes, but they also have to accept IAEA safeguards. It's kind of like a beach club where membership is voluntary, but there are major perks if you join. And like a beach club, there are different membership packages. The most basic package is called a comprehensive safeguards agreement. It's basically saying to the international community, I have made an undertaking to use all of my nuclear material for peaceful uses. And I'm happy to demonstrate that by concluding this agreement with the IAEA and they can come in check that we're not doing anything that contravenes our obligations, and then they can independently, because uh, remember the IAEA is an independent technical body, so they can independently assure the international community that I am meeting my obligations. The sort of motto for a comprehensive safeguards agreement is declare and compare. So that means once they've concluded an agreement with us, they will say, okay, here is a list of all of the material that I have in my country. And we, as the agency, say, thank you very much. We'll take your declaration. We're going to check and verify ourselves to make sure everything is there. And then we compare their declaration with our results, our verification results. So declare and compare. What our job is, is to make sure that all of the nuclear material in the facilities are used only for peaceful purposes. And we are a verification body, so we basically just need to check in, make sure everything is as it was reported to us, and we can raise a signal when we see something that isn't. A safeguards agreement like this really only works if the country declares everything to the IAEA. Which, you know, if you have something to hide, like, say, a secret underground enrichment facility in the Dons, you may not tell the IAEA about it. The states say, yes, here's what we have, but we also need to check that there isn't something else in the state that should have been included on that list. Now, we have various different ways of doing that as well. So there's another package, a sort of add-on. It's a protocol that is in addition to the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. 
So it's a protocol additional to the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. So that gives us wider access, more information, and different tools to, to utilize. This add-on package is called, creatively, the Additional Protocol. And making all this work is the Department of Safeguards. The inspectors in the Department of Safeguards make up only about 200 of the IAEA's 2,000 employees. Their job is to maintain these safeguards over time, one inspection after another, slowly building confidence that each country's nuclear activities remain purely peaceful. For me, it's something that's a slow, steady, uh, well-considered, technically-based and um, something that we can't just do one day and forget about it forever. So it has to be consistent and long-term. An inspector's job involves traveling to nuclear facilities all over the world. And being a globetrotting nuclear inspector mostly involves three things. Paperwork, packing, and jet lag. We have um, our schedulers and our travel uh, unit that will book our flights and so on. So you have enough money, you have hotel reservations, you have uh, your medicines and medicines in case you get sick because, you know, we travel all around the world and uh, our bodies react in different ways to different to food because obviously we we have to eat. It's pretty relatable, but Sandra's packing is maybe a little different than yours and mine. You need to make sure you have the right equipment. That gets a little bit more serious. Inspectors don't just randomly stroll around. They are subjecting a nuclear facility to a highly organized form of scrutiny. And that involves a lot of gear. We have a lot of portable equipment. Some we, we can take on the you know on our luggage with us and we ship it. Some we can hand carry. Uh, so there's the equipment for detecting the different types of material. And those come in a number of different sizes. Some are enormous and heavy and are not portable. So if we need to use something like that, we, we need to make sure that our relevant division can make sure it's shipped well enough in advance. And if it's a permanent installation, of course, we make sure that we have that set up and installed and tested and ready to go before we actually need to use it for verification of nuclear material. Once the inspectors arrive with all their equipment, radiation suits and so on, it's time to get to work. There's no specific routine. It depends on the facilities. So I'll pick a very simple example, maybe just a a, a power reactor. Most of the times we're starting at the facility early, something like seven o'clock or eight o'clock. And we're greeted there by the the operator who knows we're coming, um, if it's a scheduled inspection. Prior to going, if one of the activities we're going to conduct is what we call environmental swipe sampling, what we will do at the hotel before we leave is what we call it a pre-kit. So we take a swipe sample of of ourselves, our clothes, our shoes, and then that's a comparison just to make sure that if we do detect something on the swipe sample that we might take at the facility, that if it happens to have come from us, then we know it's from there or hopefully to rule out the possibility that that's happened. Anyway, so, so that's what we would do at the hotel. Then we'll sit down with the, um, the representative, our, our counterparts from the state authority, as well as the operator, and we go through a list of activities that we want to conduct in the day and just to make sure everyone's on the same page and that we can schedule our time accordingly. 
Now, most of the times uh, what we'll do is we will do a comparison of things that have been declared to us. Let's say, for example, the end of last month, they sent us the list of material they had. If we've gone two weeks later, we'll just say, okay, what's changed in the two weeks? And then we make sure all the numbers balance. So it's really just accounting, basic, well, it's more than basic accounting, but the principle is somewhat like that. Then, depending on the material that's there, uh, we will have a set of activities that we need to conduct to make sure that the quantity is correct, but also that the type of material is also correct. And we call this item counting and identification. You'll notice that Sandra is very careful not to mention specific facilities or even countries. That's because the IAEA has to protect the confidential information of each state being inspected. They take that obligation very, very seriously. One of the biggest complaints in Washington from the press and experts is that the IAEA doesn't leak like a government. Like, that's a bad thing. So all we know is that at the moment, she works for Division C, which is responsible for safeguards in Europe, Russia, and Central Asia. She deals with a lot of confidential information because safeguards is basically accounting. So in the case of a power reactor, we might start with the fresh fuel storage. They'll take us there. We can count, make sure, let's say, for example, there's 60 uh, fresh fuel assemblies. We check them. So we count them. They're all there. We do some tag checking because they all have ID numbers. But then we also need to make sure that, oh, well, if you're telling me this is fresh fuel, it should have uranium at a particular enrichment. I'm just going to check that. Now, we don't check all of them because that would take forever, but we have sampling plans that we so the calculation is done here we have uh, special methods we have special groups that can check that our sampling plans are correct and then at the end we'll have a debriefing meeting with the state authority and the operator and make sure we've done everything we wanted to do then we bring all our results back and send statements to the state to say this is what we found and yeah, so that, that's pretty much, it's pr probably grossly oversimplified, but I hope it's um, at a level enough to get the basic understanding. The word inspection sounds very adversarial, but access at the end of the day is based on consent. There is no world government that can force a state to accept inspections. The IAEA has to be firm, but also fair. It is a delicate, difficult, and ultimately impressive feat that they pull off every day. For me, just to be part of a bigger picture of non-proliferation, it is really uh, remarkable because I, of course, and all of my colleagues have a sincere commitment to that. When the Iran nuclear crisis started, Iran had the basic membership package, a comprehensive safeguards agreement. What the Iran nuclear deal did was to create a special package just for Iran. In addition to the normal safeguards agreement, Iran also opted for the additional protocol, plus a bunch of new safeguards that are much more elaborate than anything any other IAEA member has. To give you a sense of this, 
The Department of Safeguards is divided into four divisions that cover the whole world. C, where Sandra works, covers Europe, Russia, and Central Asia. A covers East Asia and the Pacific, and B, pretty much the rest of the world. But Iran? Iran has its very own office. That's because after the Iran nuclear deal, there is so much safeguards work to be done. The safeguards in the Iran nuclear deal were such an improvement that a lot of experts, like myself, wrote papers arguing that other countries should adopt them too. Officials from countries in Europe and Japan, though, all said the same thing. No way. The safeguards in the Iran nuclear deal are far too intrusive for us. The Obama administration sold the Iran nuclear deal by talking about how much longer it would take Iran to build a bomb under the deal. More than a year instead of just a few months or weeks. But I... I never thought that was the most important part. Instead, it was these safeguards that would make it so much harder for Iran to try again to build a bomb in secret. With the Iran nuclear deal in serious trouble, we're in danger of losing these safeguards. Iran's parliament has already passed a law saying that if the U.S. doesn't re-enter the deal, the special safeguards have to go. And the IAEA did work out a compromise with Iran that bought everyone a few more months, but those months are now up. And without those safeguards, the situation is going to get pretty tricky. When things get desperate like this, people look around for a silver bullet. That's next time on The Deal. The Deal is produced by me, Jeffrey Lewis, along with Aaron Davis, Juliette Luini, and Nikki Stein. Our original score is by Hannes Brown, who also mixes the episodes. Special thanks to Jessica Varnum, the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and Middlebury College. Subscribe to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you can rate and review the show and listen to season one. I'm Jeffrey Lewis. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.